God's holiness and his majesty and his just his awesomeness. And as we get into this particular passage of Scripture today, my hope is that that will just become that much more evident to us, that will become that much more overwhelming to us as we look at Scripture this morning. We're going to be reading again some of the verses that we read last week. We're going to continue to read those verses next week, Lord willing, because we're just taking our time through, especially the first 14 verses of, of this chapter, because of the, the wealth of of scriptural teaching that's in here. And I want us to, to, to think about that as, as we look through this particular passage. I want to share with you a recent conversation I had with somebody. I, I, I believe that this conversation ties into what we're talking about this morning quite well. And it ties into another passage of scripture that I heard a devotional from that really, uh, I think, connects well to what we're going to be talking about this morning also. I was talking to somebody recently on the phone, and this individual is, is, has been and is wrestling seriously with assurance of salvation. That, that's what it's boiling down to. This person agonizes over whether or not they're truly saved. As I talk to them about the gospel, as we work through that, it was abundantly clear that this individual both knew the gospel and had, at a point in their life, had put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. And yet this individual was overwhelmed with feelings of guilt over past sin. They feel that God could not possibly love them. And that because of that, they're not reading Scripture the way that they ought. They, their prayer life is impacted. And it all keeps on coming back to, I feel like this, I feel like that. And as I was having this conversation with the individual, I was thinking of a particular passage of Scripture, and I brought that passage of Scripture to them and said, but this is what Scripture says. Are you going to the Word of God and going to what you know the Bible teaches on this particular subject? The conversation always just can continue to be pulled back to, but I feel like, I feel like, I feel like. And I get thinking about something that I had recently heard in a podcast, and it was um, a Christian apologist, and uh, oftentimes this Christian apologist kind of deals with the secular worldview that is just so permeating our culture and is in fact impacting Christians. And there are four tenets, uh, Natasha Crane says, about the secular worldview that, that, that people adhere to. And I want to read it to you because I, I really think that sometimes Christians buy into these without even realizing they're buying into them. And it impacts their walk. It impacts their, 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 what they know Scripture teaches. First tenet of the secular worldview is that feelings are the ultimate guide. And in that conversation I was having with that individual, that was what glaringly came to my mind. This person was really going back to, I feel this, I feel like this. And my goal was to try to steer them away from their feelings and steer them towards the truth of what God's Word actually says. Number two, happiness is the ultimate goal. 
Third, judging is the ultimate sin. And number four, God is the ultimate guess. That's the secular worldview in a nutshell. And it's interesting how Christians today tend to be buying into some of these tenets without even realizing it. And sometimes we read a passage of Scripture like this and we say, hmm, I feel like this is not fair. And yet we need to come back to what does the Word of God say? What is the truth of God's Word here in this passage that we need to pay very close attention to? So I want to read verses 3 through 14. We're, of course, not going to be dealing with all of these verses. We're actually really only going to be dealing with verses um, 3 through 6 this morning. But I want us to read this passage. We talked about the fact that Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, is writing to the believers, the saints, in Ephesus. In fact, actually, and I didn't really get into this last week, but um, in the oldest manuscripts in the Greek language, the phrase at Ephesus, because we read verse, the end of verse 1, it says to the faithful saints in Christ at Ephesus. In the earliest manuscripts of the Greek text, we actually don't see at Ephesus there at all. So it's very possible that this was a letter that was written not just to the saints in Ephesus, but that was meant to be read in all of the churches in Asia Minor. But no doubt, nonetheless, it was a letter to the believers in this city, if not the other cities around. And as Paul's writing to these believers, this is what he says to them. He says, blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. Just let that sit for a second. He has blessed us with every, every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. We'll talk more about that as we go. But I just want you to think about that for a second. This is the kind of blessing that we're talking about from God to us as believers. He goes on, he says this, For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, that he has lavished on us in the beloved one. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure and that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in Him. In Him we have also received an inheritance. Because we have, excuse me, because we are predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of His will, so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to His glory. In Him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of His glory. We're going to pause 
there. We're only going to look at the first few verses of this particular passage. There are two things that I want us to see from verses 3 through 6. Number one, that we are God's chosen people. We are God's chosen people. You've got to remember that Paul is writing to believers, to, to the saints. We talked about the fact that believers are called saints, and what does that mean? I had some great conversations with people coming out of that particular me- message because sometimes we have had misconceptions about what a saint, who a saint is. We sometimes even struggle with ever being called that when we're aware of our sinfulness as human beings. And yet, nonetheless, this letter is written to those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, to believers, to the saints. And then Paul goes on, and he says, Blessed is God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's, this is a benediction. Paul has a number of benedictions in, in, in his letters to the different churches. This one happens to be a very long and deep benediction in, in kind of an pr- opening prayer in his letter. And he says, praise be to God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed is God. That phrase, that word blessed is actually a Greek word from which we get the word eulogy. And sometimes we think of a eulogy in a particular way, but really the, the word means praise and commendation. It's really that we are extolling the goodness of the one who is the object of that. So in this case, Paul is saying, blessed is God. I want to extol the goodness and greatness of God. I want to praise and commend God for His awesome goodness and grace. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's just, he is so overwhelmed by what he knows God has done for the believer that he can't help but praise God. Have you thought about that recently? Have you been brought to praise of Almighty God as you've kind of sat back and thought about what God has done for you? I know that most days... Day in and day out as Christians, we just go about our business. We get up, may have a time of prayer, we may do our devotions in the morning, we go about our day. And there are things that we praise God for, there are things that we thank God for. But oftentimes it's, we're thanking God for the good night's sleep that we had, or we're thankful for, you know, yesterday that it wasn't a bad day at work, or But sometimes we don't necessarily always take a step back and say, I just want to spend some time thinking and praising God for what He's done for me as a Christian, what He has done in my life, how He has saved me, and what that salvation actually entails. Paul here is extolling the goodness and greatness of God because of what He's done for the believer. He says, blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. You might ask, what what are the spiritual blessings that he's talking about here? I mean, he says every spiritual blessing in the heavens. He's connecting these spiritual blessings to the heavenly realm, to God and what God has accomplished, and really connecting it to all eternity. 
as you actually look at the rest of the passage, you start to see the spiritual blessings that he has given to us. We're going to hit two of them today. Lord willing, we'll hit some other ones next week, but I'll give you, well, I'll just let you in on the little secret if you don't already know. He's blessed us with being chosen in him. That is the doctrine of election. We are going to talk about that today. For some, that might actually be a little frightening. For some, it might be, well, I'm not even sure what that is anyway. We're going to talk about adoption today. We're adopted as sons and daughters of God into his family. That's a spiritual blessing. We're going to talk, Lord willing, next week about redemption. We're going to talk about the inheritance that we have. We're going to talk about the sealing of the Holy Spirit, the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. And what does that mean? These are just the spiritual blessings that Paul digs into just in this particular passage. But these are the spiritual blessings that he's talking about. Peter actually talks about this as well, and we're going to kind of get into that as I read 2 Peter a little bit later on, because I want us to see what Peter says even on this particular subject. But these are the spiritual blessings in heaven in Christ. They are directly connected to verse 13 that we've already read. It says this, In Him you are also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Here it is. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. There's the connection. Paul's connecting the spiritual blessings that we received with our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because we heard the gospel of our salvation and we believed. This is for believers. It's connected to the gospel and our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, our response to the gospel. Paul says that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. And then he gets into two key spiritual blessings here, two doctrinal components that come with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first one is that we've been chosen by God, the doctrine of election. Now, the moment we get into that, there are some of us that are going, mm, I'm, I'm kind of uncomfortable about that. There are certain terms that start coming up you know, Reformed or Calvinist or Arminian, if you know anything about those terms. We're not going to get into all that. What we are going to get into is, what does the Bible say about this? Well, clearly, Scripture actually says that we, as believers, are chosen by God. It says, for He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in love before Him. It's not the only passage of Scripture that talks about this. Let me read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says this, but we ought, we ought to thank God also for you, brothers and sisters loved by the Lord, because before the beginning, excuse me, but from the beginning God has chosen you for salvation through the sanctification of the Spirit, through belief in the truth. There's another passage of Scripture where Paul says, you're chosen by God. He says, you're chosen for salvation through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, through belief in the truth. There's another passage of Scripture. What about John chapter 6? John chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus says this, Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. 
Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 10, 30, uh, excuse me, John 10, 27 to, to 30 says this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. There's no doubt that the Bible does teach the doctrine of election, that God chooses to save people. Chooses to save some. And yet, we understand if we read Scripture that there seems to be a tension here because we have this choosing by God that seems to be arbitrary. I'm, I'm going to say that it seems to be arbitrary because we look at it from a, 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 a wrong lens, I think. We have to understand what Paul is saying here, that the word chose here is actually in the aorist tense, in the middle voice. It actually indicates God's total independent choice. It's not based on anything but God's good pleasure, His grace. It's a reflexive verb, which means that God chose by Himself for Himself. So it seems pretty definitive when, when Paul says, for he chose us in him before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless in love. But yet we know of other passages of Scripture like John 3.16. Let me read it for you. It's one that we're all familiar with. But what does John say in John 3.16? He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. We understand the phrase, whosoever will may come. Then we read verses like 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that says, the Lord does not delay his, his promises some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all come to repentance. So we hear these words, and we look at them and say, wait, wait a second, there seems to be a clash here. The reality of it is, is that there is a tension in Scripture between the whosoever will may come and God choosing those who are His. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30 say this, For we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. For those He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be, we, he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those He predestined, He also called. And those He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. We read verses like this and we say, we get into discussions and debates about the free will of man and the sovereignty of God and we try to reconcile these things. And I'm going to tell you right now, you can do that your whole life and you'll never be able to reconcile it. Many learned 
Christian scholars and theologians have sought to do that over the centuries and haven't been able to do it. And you and I aren't going to be able to do it either. There's a tension in Scripture when it comes to this topic. But the reality of it is, is that the doctrine of election is biblical. And I love how J.I. Packer puts it. In his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, he recognizes this tension. Um, It's a long quote, but just bear with me. I want to read it. He says, All Christians believe in divine sovereignty, but some are not aware that they do, and mistakenly imagine and insist that they reject it. What causes this odd state of affairs? The root cause is the same as in most cases of error in the church. The intruding of rationalistic expectations, the passion of a systematic consistency, and a a reluctance to recognize the existence of mystery and to let God be wiser than men, and a constant subjecting of Scripture to the supposed demands of human logic. People see the Bible teaches man's responsibility for his actions. They do not see, man indeed cannot see, how this is consistent with the sovereign lordship of God over those actions. They are not content to let the two truths live side by side, as they do in Scripture, but jump into the conclusion that in order to uphold an equally, uh, excuse me, biblical truth of human responsibility, they are bound to reject the equally biblical and equally true doctrine of divine sovereignty. To explain away the great number of texts that teach it. To desire to oversimplify the Bible by cutting out the mysteries in, uh, is natural to our perverse minds. And it is not surprising that even godly men should fall victim to it. Hence this persistent and troublesome dispute. The irony of the situation, however, is that when we, ta- when we ask how the two sides pray, it becomes evident that those who profess to deny God's sovereignty really believe in it just as strongly as those who affirm it. What's Packer saying? Packer's saying that there is a tension there between the, for God so loved the world that whoever would believe in him will be saved, and the God chose us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in Him. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. For passages like 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where Paul says, But we thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, loved by God, because from the beginning God has chosen you for salvation, through the sanctification of the Spirit, and through the belief in the truth. Appreciate what James Boyce says. This is how he kind of sums that up. He says, first, he, talking about God, made our salvation possible by sending Jesus Christ to die for our sins. And then he made us capable of responding to him by sending the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to the truth and glory of the gospel. Thus, All the blessings that we enjoy must be traced back to his sovereign electing purpose of God towards us in Christ Jesus. And Paul does exactly what these opening verses, does that, does exactly that in these opening verses of Ephesians. He's talking to those who have responded to the gospel, the truth. They believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he points out to them that they have been chosen by God. 
chosen before the foundation of the world, chosen to be holy and blameless in love. This is something that I believe actually helps us when we understand this particular doctrine. See, to know that because I've put my faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, I've responded to the gospel message when I heard the gospel of salvation, and I said, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died to save me from my sin. I'm reminded that I've been chosen by God. And no matter how I feel on a particular day, I can be assured of my salvation. Why? Because I go back to the truth of the Word of God. I've been chosen by God. Not because of any merit that I had in of myself. Paul actually says that in chapter 2 of Ephesians. He says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love that He had for us, made us alive in Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We are saved by grace. He says, for you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. See, when I understand this appropriately and properly, I understand I can't brag about my salvation in the sense that I earned it or I deserved it or I did something to work towards it. It is completely unmerited. It is the unmerited favor of God on us. We've had the opportunity to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and respond to it because the Holy Spirit drew us to the Lord, convicted us of sin, and brought us to Him as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, we are adopted into His family. We could go longer on that, but for sake of time, we'll leave it at that. Number two, we are adopted into His family. Adoption is actually a result of election. As we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we responded to the gospel message and believed and reminded that we were chosen by God, but we experience adoption. He says this in verse 5, He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace that He lavished on us in the Beloved One. This is all accomplished through the Lord Jesus Christ and the work of Christ on the cross of Calvary for us. But we are adopted as sons and daughters of God. You ever thought about what it means to be adopted into God's family? We look at it from human perspectives you know, oftentimes it gets compared to kind of the Greco-Roman understanding of adoption where um, somebody could be, well, as I was studying it, it, it was kind of described this way, that the emperor would take, you know, a slave child and adopt that slave child, and that slave child would have all the rights and privileges that come with the emperor and his family and, and all of that, and that one day that child could even become the next emperor. And that sounds awesome. The thing is, is that that still doesn't encapsulate, encapsulate, what's the right word there? I don't know. Anyway, you can tell me later. The gravity of what it is for us with God. I love what S.M. 
Ba says here, he says, the Greco-Roman adoptees were often members of the Father's extended relations. In the case of believers, God has taken the most distant foreigners to be his king for inheritance of his whole estate. Not the deserving or the good, as Romans 5, 7 says. Not many well-born or powerful or wise, as 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 30 says. But those who by nature, not of his kin at all, but children of wrath, as Ephesians 2, 3 says. And darkened sons of disobedience, as Ephesians 5, 6, and 8, and also 4, 17 through 24 say. His helpless, wicked, sinful enemies, as Romans 5, 6 through 10 says. Under thrall of the realm of darkness, as Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, Colossians 1, 13, and John 8, 44 say. God does not place these new sons into a subordinate, inferior family. He appoints them all to become co-heirs with His natural firstborn Son, in whom the whole creation is summarized, for co-rule over all things with Him as those who have been co-seated with Him in the heavenlies. Think about that. In verse 10, it says this, as a plan for the right time to, be bring, to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and on earth, in Him we have also received an inheritance. We will rule and reign with Christ. We have been adopted into God's family and everything that goes with that whole estate. Have you ever thought about what God has blessed you with? That we get to co-rule over all things with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is co-seated with Him in the heavenlies? It's hard for us to really grasp the gravity of that. It's hard to grasp the, 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 the spectacular nature of that. And yet, that's the result of adoption into God's family. We'll understand as we go on when we talk about the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit and the, the guarantee and the promise that He is, but as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as those who have been chosen by God and adopted into His family, we cannot be kicked out of His family. We have eternal security because of the very precious promises that are being described in this passage, which we'll continue to expound on. There are those that argue, and we get into these arguments, right? This one saved always saved. Oh, you know what? What you know? When you're talking about this sort of stuff, doesn't that just mean that we can trust Christ and be saved, and then we can live whatever way we want? No, not at all. Paul talks about that countless times, by the way, in the book of Romans. We we won't get into all that, but he just dwells on these wrong thinking, this wrong idea, over and over again. But what I will say is, let's come back to the passage that we're looking at. For He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before Him. 
If I am a truly born-again believer in Jesus Christ, then you know what? I'm going to be growing in holiness and blamelessness because I'm being conformed to the image of His Son. So God is doing a work in my life. He is changing my passions. He's changing my motivations. He's changing my mindset. He's changing me and making me more like Christ. I'm wanting to do what God's called me to do. I'm wanting to live the way that God's called me to live. I have a deeper ang- angst about my sin because that God's doing a transformative work in my life. I don't want to live in a way that displeases God. If we really are thinking about these things, well, I'm just going to get saved so I can live whatever I want because i got to get out of hell free card, then that, that's... That's not the thinking of a born-again believer. So as we think about this particular passage of Scripture, I want us to see, as Paul is intending for the Ephesians to see, is that as we understand the truth of salvation, as we understand core doctrine, it actually impacts the way that we live. See, because later on in Ephesians, Paul is going to say, you need to walk worthy of your calling. You need to live in light of the truth that I've communicated to you. You need to live as believers. Your life should look like the life of someone who has given their life to Christ. We have assurance of our salvation, but we also are commanded to live as believers, but we also are commanded to stand firm as believers in the day and age in which we live. I want to go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 for a second, because as Paul in Ephesians is going to move from this is doctrine, this is theology to practicality, if I can put it that way, Paul says very much the same thing in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, but we ought also to thank God Always for you, brothers and sisters, loved by God, because from the beginning God has chosen you for salvation through the sanctification by the Spirit, through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm. Hold to the traditions you were taught, whether by what we said or by what we wrote. The Thessalonian Christians were having trouble standing firm in the faith in the midst of the pressure and the persecution that they were experiencing in the world around them. And Paul's saying, look, because you know that you are God's chosen people, because you know that you have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, stand firm in the faith. Don't waver, don't cower, stand firm. We, should have, we, we, of all people, should be able to understand that. We are constantly today pressed to give up what the Bible teaches as truth on issue after issue after issue. Oh, what you believe is archaic. You need to change your mindset on that. You need to get on the right side of history. What your understanding about whatever sexuality, your understanding about morality, that's archaic. You need to change your mindset upon that. And as Christians, we're saying, no, I'm going to stand firm. God says that this is wrong. I'm going to say that this is wrong. God says that this is right. I'm going to say that this is right. 
we of all people should understand how important it is to stand firm. I think of 2 Peter chapter 1 where Paul says, or Peter says this, he says an awful lot that is very consistent with what Paul's saying here. And verse 3 says, His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us by His own glory and goodness. There you go. We're called by God as believers. We have been given every, everything required for life and godliness. You ever thought about that? We have all that we need for life and godliness as Christians. Which means we can live victorious lives in a sinful world as believers. We don't need to wallow in our sin. We don't need to feel like we're not saved. We come back to what the Bible tells us is true. That if we've placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ... As Lord and Savior, we are saved. We are His children. We have been adopted into His family. We have all that we need for life and godliness. By these, He has given us very great and precious promises. We've actually talked about some of those promises today. So that through them, you might share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption of this world because of, the e of evil desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness. Goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. I could spend an, an entire whole sermon on just that. Let that just sink in. Maybe come back to this passage later on in your own personal study. For if you possess these qualities... An increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. God has called us to be fruitful followers of Jesus, not fruitless. The person who lacks these things is blind, short-sighted, has forget, forgotten the cleansing from past sin. When I read that passage of Scripture, I thought of the individual that I was talking to who is wrestling with assurance of salvation. Why? Because they've forgotten about the cleansing of past sin. They confessed that sin a long time ago. But they've forgotten that Jesus cleansed them from that sin. And they're wallowing in it still. And dev the devil's got them totally hamstrung because they, they've forgotten that Jesus saved them from their sin. Therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election because if you do these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly provided for you. Peter's saying what Paul's saying. And as we understand these doctrinal truths, it impacts the way that we live. We have assurance of our salvation. We understand that we have everything that we need for life and godliness. And we know how to proceed walking in a holy and blameless way, which we have call, been called as Christians to do. There are some that try to pull out the, the card, well, you know, if you really believe in the doctrine of election, then, you know, you don't even need to, to evangelize. Say, if God knows who are His, like, what's the big deal? That, that's a totally wrong way of thinking. God knows who are His. I don't know who are His. 
My responsibility, which the Bible makes abundantly clear, is for me to go and you to go and preach the gospel to every nation. Paul makes it clear. How are they going to believe if they don't hear, and how do they hear without a preacher? Somebody needs to go and proclaim the goodness and grace and gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to lost people. It doesn't negate evangelism. God saves people. I don't. But my responsibility is to go out and share the gospel with anybody and everybody that I can. I have to say, I, I was an eyewitness of someone who had to have the ambulance called. I, I don't know the, 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 where this person's at as far as whether um, they survived this incident or not, but there, something happened physically with them. The ambulance was called to me. As, a, as an onlooker, it looked like a desperate situation. And the only thing that kept on going through my mind is, is this person saved? Is this the moment where they're going to exit the temporal and go into the eternal? And do they know Christ as Savior or not? Are they going to spend eternity in the presence of Almighty God, or are they going to spend eternity in hell? And God overwhelmed me with the fact that how many people do we walk by every day where today could be their last day, and, none of, and no one has gone to them and said, hey, I want to tell you about Jesus Christ and what Christ has done for you. Hey, would you be saved today? If we realize what God has done for us, don't we want to go out and say, hey, I want to tell you what God could do for you in saving you from your sin? It's not an excuse not to evangelize. If anything else, it should give them, us the freedom to evangelize and the encouragement to evangelize. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Savior, Christ died on the cross to save you from your sin. And Ephesians makes it abundantly clear that right now you're dead in your trespasses and sins. And that God wants to make you alive in Christ. Would you put your faith and trust in Jesus who died to save you? Who took your sin on himself? Died a horrible death, shed his blood for you so that you could experience the redemption of your trespasses. Trust Christ today. Christian, are you walking in holiness, blamelessness, the way that God's called us to walk? Telling people about the Lord Jesus Christ because you're overwhelmed with what Christ has done for you. I trust that you are. May you have a new appreciation, a new love for God, because you understand even better what he's done.